there's a certain kind of corrosive aspect that comes from focusing on money. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole about saying capitalism is evil. I'm just saying is that as an, I was an econ undergraduate and you talk about externalities in economics. And I think that by having money be the only focus, the only efficiency, there's a lot of power in that. Hello and welcome to This Is 8CD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a designer, educator and the host of This Is 8CD based in the beautiful and the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now, our goal here is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. Now, I caught up with Scott Jensen recently and Scott refers to himself as a battle-scarred veteran of the software industry. He's been doing user interface design and strategic planning for over 30 years and he worked at Apple on System 7, Newton and the Apple Human Interface Guidelines. He was Director of User Experience of Symbian, VP of Product Design for Cognima and managed Mobile UX for Google and was Creative Director at Frog Design in San Francisco. Scott returned to Google in 2013 to lead the physical web project and research future Android UX concepts. And in 2021, Scott left Google to explore life outside. And it's kind of what we're discussing here a little bit more, because in this episode, we drill into Scott's focus at the moment, and that is design within Foz, which is free and open source software. We plan on recording two episodes. So this is part one and part two will follow early in 2023. Can you believe it, folks? Before we jump in, though, if you like what we're doing here at This Is 8CD, you can help us out by leaving a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It only takes a couple of minutes and it really helps us out. Or you can go one better by becoming a patron. You can go and get an ad-free stream of the podcast for as little as €1.66 per month and also get a shout-out as thanks. And there's little plans there as well where you can get hoodies and T-shirts and stuff if you want to pay a little bit more. And all the money goes to editing, hosting and maintaining our wonderful website, which is now a repository for over 230 episodes of human-centered design goodness. Anyway, let's jump straight into the episode. Scott is fantastic and I know you're going to really enjoy this. Let's get into it. Scott Jensen, a very warm welcome to This Is Hate CD. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. No, I'm delighted to have you here. As I've mentioned to you uh, before when we were speaking the other day, um, we connected in passing way back in Sydney. A long time ago. 2012 or 2013 or something like that. Um, Web Directions down in Sydney where you spoke about mobile and um design i think i can't remember what such it was. a great conference yeah. it was a great conference i do remember that at that stage because it was an interesting time for the web in 2012 we were entering new kind of realms with interface design and stuff i think there was a couple of talks there about no no interface design which gave people nosebleeds including myself but um anyway we're here we're we're, we're, we're chatting now on the podcast but maybe for people who don't know uh, don't know about you maybe start off by telling them a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, I started uh, back in, in the 80s working as one of the very first UX designers at Apple Computer. Wow. Um, they, had, they had researchers, but they didn't have a production UX person. So I joined the system software team mm-hmm. and was there for a number of years. I transferred into the Newton group and then as a programmer, because I have actually a computer science background. Um, and then I programmed and designed for the Newton for a number of years and shipped that. I was very excited by that product. Uh, left and did um, consulting for a little while, then went to London, worked at Symbian. So 
for my UK listeners, they're, they're a lot more familiar with Symbian yeah. than say the American listeners are. I was director of product design for Symbian for a number of years and then came back, did more consulting. And then eventually around 2008, started at Google and was their first mobile UX designer. And then managed that team for a number of years, um, left, became a creative director at Frog Design, uh, San Francisco for a couple of years, did a couple of startups and then came back to Google um, where I worked on the physical web project and um, then semi-retired. And now I'm, I'm back briefly for a little project for a little while, but I'm, I'm trying to retire. Yeah, that's, it's a hell of a resume that you've just called out there. You've, you've literally seen the birth of the internet, mobile, everything that in, in my lifetime that I've probably used as a designer and a design educator you've been involved in. Well, I'd like to say that it's always a team sport and yeah. I, I was, it was really fun to be there. And I, uh, I definitely have, uh, seen lots of people do interesting things. Yeah, absolutely. So which part of the, uh, of your career are you, are you most proud of? Um, I think I'm probably most proud of the physical web project because that was the one that was really trying to push the boundaries to mm. try to say, what does it mean to really get beyond the mobile phone? The physical web project was basically trying to discover uh, interactivity around you in a new way so that your phone could be effectively a sensor to find things for you. Um, the project ended up getting canceled for reasons we can get into, yeah. but I think it was the start of an interesting direction that I think is going to continue. Yeah, when was in that? In some form or another. When were you were? Uh, it was around 2015, 2018, okay. and um, and it was all about basically using URLs as the fundamental payload of information, so that because web pages are instant, and then you need your phone was basically creating a discovery mechanism to find these Bluetooth URLs that were being broadcast in, in the area around you. Can you give me a, a use case for that, like or a scenario? Of well, the idea would be is that you would be at a mall and you would just open up your phone and you would just see a little link at the top that says, oh, do you want a map of the mall? Okay. And then you would just get, because th this came out of my work at Frog Design where we were doing all this work for clients who said, we just need an app, design an app for us. And we would design an app. And then they would say, nobody installs our app <laughs> because there's just so much friction and, and you just yeah. can't have an app for everything. And the superpower of the web is just interaction on demand. And so I was trying to connect the dots to say, how can you get to a web page as fast as possible? And the obvious answer today is, of course, use a QR code. Hmm. And I think that's actually a very reasonable solution. I used to be very negative on QR codes. But the intention, though, is that you just can't always find the QR code. If I'm in the mall, where do I go to find the QR code? So it was, it was meant to be more situational. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's still a possibility. It's just there's some kinks we had to work out to, to make yeah. it really work. I had that when I used to travel from Australia to, to Europe quite a bit. And you'd get into an airport in the middle of the night. I think it might have been Singapore. When you turn your phone on, it would give you the map of the airport and where things were and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is insane. This is, uh, so that's the kind of the kind of technology that you were working. That was at Google, wasn't it? That was at Google, yeah. I, in fact, yeah. When I, so I, I returned to Google to work on that for a number of years. So I've actually left and come, I've, I've joined Google three times. Very good. So I don't, yeah, I think I, that might. I don't, I don't think many people have done that, but yeah. Um, if you stick around long enough, you'll leave and you'll come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but today we want to talk a little bit more about free and open, um, software, open source yes. software. Um, it's a passion of yours that we, it's probably why we've connected because, yeah. um, 
there's there's an awful lot of obviously at the moment what's happening at Twitter and um, people moving over to Mastodon um myself included I'm over there for anyone listening um but where does the desire to explore um FOSS in greater detail come from for you it came from the fact that I just felt that there's a certain kind of corrosive of uh, aspect that comes from focusing on money. I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole about saying capitalism is evil. I'm just saying is that as an, I was an econ undergraduate and you talk about the externalities in economics. And I think that by having money be the only focus, the only efficiency, there's mm. a lot of power in that, but it also tends to get you to simplify the world. And I felt that too many projects were being corroded by focusing on money and not focusing on the right things. And open source just opens up that door. It opens mm -hmm. up that door to say, we just don't need to worry about that at all. And it allows you to do things that would be dumb if you were a corporate, you know, open, open file formats. You do things that actually break down the moat so that you don't care if the user is locked in. And it's that aspect of open source that I find very attractive. For people who don't know about open source, I think I might want to just take a little bit of a step back for a second. Um, give us a use case because there's there's certain um, alternates to software out there um, from the, the big two, like Microsoft, Google, and Apple as well, the big three, should I say, um, say for text editing. If you don't want to use Google Docs, there's um, was it micro or some Office OS? I think it was what I used to there's use. That, there's Etherpad. There's LibreOffice. There's a, there's a ton. Yeah, in my experience, when I've used those, as cool as they are, the fact that I don't have to take my credit card out, the experience is always somewhat um, not as good as the stuff from. The oh, core. it's terrible. It's terrible. Oh God! So I'm, I'm trying to be kind to the designers on the OS stuff. Um, no, but 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 it's it's a well known critique. Hmm. Now, not all open source software, by the way, is that way. It's yeah. just uh, it's it's the ones that I think try really hard to like replace Office. Uh, yeah. I think GIMP GIMP is famous as the yep. Photoshop replacement, uh, which I mean, in many ways, GIMP has actually gotten a lot better over the years. Hmm. Uh, it just has these edge cases where you're like, what? You know, and so there's, there's, there's these moments. And in fact, this is what got me, ex I, I got excited by, shall we say, the structural potential of open source. It's not beholden yeah. to these other forces, but there yeah. is exactly this concern that um, there's a famous treatise on open source called The Cathedral and the Bazaar, which is kind of required reading if you're going to be an open mm -hmm. source. And it talks about the fact that the best user is the developer. And as a UX designer, you're like, no, don't say that. Um, because the idea is that you want someone to just, you know, have a problem and fix it immediately. Like this mm. warrior priest that has a problem and just does it. And for certain types of things, it, that actually does work. But as you become more and more commercial, this idea that you are the user is kind of anathema to any good designer. And mm. part of this road that I've been on for the last two years has been to say, let's improve open source software. And that's why I've given two talks. I'm hopefully going to give a third one this summer mm -hmm. uh, about what does it take to mature the open source ecosystem to have better design? Uh, it's it's so important because as we're seeing at the moment, um, we've taken for granted one of the my greatest platforms for, for information, Twitter, over the last 15 years, 
it's yeah. just being slowly eroded and suddenly it's like rats fleeing a ship we're like where are we all going where are we going to and the schadenfreude is strong <laughs> it's it's a reality though that um that's happening i remember like as i explained to you i used to be at myspace and um there was a yeah. we, we we had this with people jumping ship to facebook because at the time and it's historically known myspace didn't have a great interface or a great understanding of what experiences were yeah um and then facebook was doing it much better in this instance though it's a little bit different whereas twitter does it really better but it's just been we're, we're being challenged ethically and we're, we're migrating to a platform that doesn't have the same experience that has a, has a lesser experience uh, and our values are being called out do you think there's a case um of other products going down the, the same road as twitter at the moment and if so are you okay to talk about them that's a really good question um i think what you just said it has there's a lot to unpack with what you just said yeah um but um let me answer, let me answer your direct question is um i i do think that there is this general concern hmm. about um how you're being monetized how you are the product and this uh, desire this this frustration with how things are being overly monetized hmm. so i read a comment the other day that someone said I just tried to find a, uh, an alarm clock app on my phone and I couldn't find one that wasn't an annual subscription. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is just odd, right? And Strange. that's just very, very, you know, so I, and, uh, and there's obviously the disaster that's happening with mobile gaming right now where everybody initially was just fine spending five or $10 on a game. And then a few developers realized that if you charged nothing, you'd get a lot more installs and it created the whole freemium market which then appealed to the digital whales. Have you heard that term, digital whale? No. A digital whale is basically 0.1% of your users are willing to spend $100 to get crystals to beat the game. And so that's where all your money comes from. So the game is not designed for you and me. It's designed for that whale. And it's, it's entirely for them to spend the money. And you're just uh, a statistical insignificance. And so mobile gaming has been transformed into gaming for mobile for whales digital whales and it's ruined it's ruined mobile gaming so so i think there's all sorts of ways we can talk about this kind of corrosive aspect of pricing mm. and money and how frustrating it is yeah and no, that's something i i hadn't been aware of i'm not really into the mobile gaming thing at all like you know um but maybe we should just start talking a, a little bit more around um open source software and to how sure. we can actually I want to understand a little bit more how they start, okay? Because um, it seems to be like a, an answer to a problem that's out there, an alternative to the conversation. And I believe that we're going through a point in time where suddenly more people, other than the, the kind of sacred group of, of early adopters, are starting to call out these kind of alternatives as valid and uh, mm -hmm. viable options for us to move to. I mean... Um, three or four or five years ago, I don't know when it was, when Adobe moved Creative Cloud uh, to the full subscription model and I, you did the basic maths on it and you realized, actually, you know what? I don't really need Creative Cloud so much, which was un <laughs> right. un yeah. unforgiving, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I was like, I'm going to go to Affinity, okay? And Affinity have done remarkable work and their software was actually Brendan Dawes. I don't know if you know Brendan. Brendan told I me do. about it. I, yeah. Brennan was like, try it, guarantee you won't go back. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll try it. And I saw it and I bought it for my iPad and I bought it, 
you know, for my Mac here as well. And it was insane because typically you couldn't get that kind of software and that same kind of experience on Mac OS, whereas mm. Affinity had it. And it was in many ways better than Adobe. And it was a one-off payment. And I loved them for it. Yeah. Um, but I want to understand a little bit more around um, frame, framing that early inception of the projects and the products. Um, who typically starts these off? Um, and how do they avoid the the conflict, the the yeah. dissonance of saying, well, you know, we could charge something for it and we could have a business model here that allows us to s- sustain ourselves, like giving it away for free. Does it always have to be free, basically? Right. Well, and that's the most common question I get when I explain open source software to family members. And they're mm-hmm. like, who pays? How do they pay? Where does yeah. it? how there's just like this just this disbelief as to how it works and i think it's important to understand that open source is a technique not a destination and there's many many types of open source so it started off as operating systems and Mm -hmm. they were uh, building things for themselves and then the web kind of showed how you could build almost the entire web on these tools that got used by other people. And then you started, you got the model where big companies were helping mm-hmm. open source because they knew it needed to be open so everybody could use it, but you got effectively big benefactors coming in and helping things out. So that's one model where you get effectively enlightened companies realizing that these core pieces need to yeah. be done in an open way. Um, and then as you, the, the lovely thing about open source is that it seems to kind of flow in between the cracks. It goes where it's needed. So it, it started off as operating systems and it slowly became tools. Was and then utilities. Well, like, so for example, um, someone will say, well, there'll never be a AAA game that's ever open source. And I'm like, no shit, of course not. But what you're seeing is you're seeing um, a lot of open source, a lot of games using open source tools like Blender. Blender's a 3D yeah. modeling software that's entirely open source. So you're, you're getting effectively open source creeping up and it's kind yeah. of getting, it's growing in ways that people weren't expecting. And it's this new slightly consumery focused things. At least at first that you got tools that were very, very programmer focused. And we're now starting to grow into these consumer facing tools, which is what's having having the problem with open source. I mean with, with UX. Hmm. So I to me what's fascinating is how open source is just biting off bigger and bigger problems. And it's hmm. going through that natural maturation phase. And um, and so to your funding question, there's this new model called open core where you build this product in a way that the core is completely open source and for everybody can use it, no, no problem. But then you use it in a way that is helpful. Like you sell service, uh, uh, you run it on your server. You become effectively an instance of it. Um, the uh, open, uh, sorry, home, uh, home assistant, an excellent home controller for your smart oh. home, completely open source, anybody can do it, but they sell a service in the cloud that connects you to other services. Uh, Nabucasa. And so that to me is this brilliance of the model is to say, you know what, we're built on a solid open source foundation that's completely free and clear. We're going to add services on top. Red Hat did the same thing with Linux. So that's where the money comes in is that you actually build in such a way where the core is is completely open source and you have services on the side. And that gives a sustainable model. Uh, Penpot, by the way, the Figma replacement is doing the same. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I checked that one out the other day. Um, So who's working on them? So I think that's where people are, and myself included, struggle with it a little bit. Is there a small group of people in terms of developers who have, I wouldn't say ownership of it, but in terms of they're involved in the creation and the update and the key, the upkeep of 
of the the interface and the back end? I'm I'm not sure I will be able to give a complete answer mm. because I've fully managed my open source project. I work with open source, but I don't think I have quite the encyclopedic overview that you need to answer it. But from my yeah. experience, um, you've got everything from small little projects. Like I just talked to someone the other day that's working on a tool for academics and it's using a markdown editor. And it's just a couple of people that are just building this thing. They're scratching their own itch, right? It just happens yeah. to be that one of them is a programmer and one of them a designer. So they've actually got a good team together. And they're just trying to see if there's a market there that of, of people that like it. And apparently they've got a couple hundred thousand users. Yeah. And that's that's the kind of the cool part about it is that it's exploratory. Um, my understanding is the vast majority of open source projects get no traffic at all. Yeah. Like people people try it and nothing happens. But frankly, that's no different than commercial software. Absolutely. You know, it's, a, it's exactly the same. Exactly. So I don't think there's there's a big difference here. It's just really the fact that they don't have to make money. Um, yeah. the, the, uh, and a lot of projects, by the way, are entirely done through donation. They start off as donations and and there is no open core, no side business. They are literally just trying to get started. Um, there's a lot of companies that are trying to get grants to do that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a million experiments that are happening right now. Uh, but they're all, I think, the, the fundamental point, though, is that they just want to be motivated by this open core that Absolutely. is transparent. And, and that's the part I think that's really exciting. It's like a belief system, really, at its core. It's it's a belief system that we want to talk about and share. And is that fair to say? I, well, I think I think everybody has ethics, mm -hmm. and so at, at every level, everything's a belief system. I just think that this is just taking it that extra step. Mm -hmm. That extra saying is that no, we need to build this in a way that takes into account these externalities. I mean, people need portability. People don't want to be tracked. People, um, you want to have transparency. Um, there's all, uh, people want open file formats. Um, these are things that are not necessarily encouraged by closed source software. Um, yeah. And so there's this belief that software should be quote unquote built right. And, yeah. um, and uh, like, and as you point out too, it's not totally built right. It's, it's, it's possibly architected right, but it's certainly not designed right. And that's where I was Absolutely. trying to come in. Right. And there's a huge op opportunity for designers like yourself to to advise, I guess, and just to put some more um, rigor, I guess, in terms of like how they could improve. Is that fair to say? That, that's it. And part of it is back to this maturity issue, because I've talked to multiple UX designers who have tried and we all have the same experience. You go into an open source project. You're like, hey, I want to help. And they're like, oh, awesome. Can you fix our icons? Yeah, that's. It's like, really, really, really? That, that, that's what you want me for is your icons. Because part of the issue is it's a little bit like 1984. Everything yeah. is done through Git and Git is the language and the language of anything is through Git. And so the only thing that you can do is check in files. And the only files that designers can touch are icons. So yeah. you work your way to, and it's like, that's the thing that you're able to do as opposed to what a UX designer wants to do is to talk to the stakeholders, prioritize your product roadmap. You know, it's like, where does that fit into Git? Well, so you can't do that. So yeah. part of it is to, and that's why I'm excited by things like GitLab and their uh, UX showcase. So there are uh, open source platforms that are really trying to elevate UX uh, deliverables. And that's Absolutely. a good sign that things are maturing. 
So I'll put a link to uh, GitLab in the show notes for anyone who's, who's listening and is interested to, to tap into GitLab a little bit more because it focuses more on the processes um, that allow designers to be, and I mean true designers as opposed to like, making things look pretty like the decoration. It's a uh, first step, but it's it's a lot better to have that kind of ex- exposure to it, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now here's a question for you, and I, I, I'm assuming you may not be able to answer this one. Um, but say looking at Mastodon at the moment where they've had, I think, a, a million subscribers in the last couple of weeks um, onto various instances and stuff. What is it possible at some point that Mastodon could be commercialized uh, in its current incumbent where you may get a Elon Musk of sorts coming back over to Mastodon and saying, OK, well, we, we want to invest into this. We, we There could be another corporation that wants to support its growth and it may be presented in an altruistic way. Um, but in reality, it's no longer an open source project. It's been funded by big tech. Is that a reality Is that, or is that something that you don't well, think yeah. Well, I certainly won't prescribe what will happen. I can just talk about the forces in play yeah. Um, the common analogy that people make uh, to Mastodon is is email, because email is an open protocol, SMTP. Mm-hmm. Mastodon yeah. is based on an open protocol called ActivityPub. And so it's like, oh, you can go to Hotmail, you can go to Yahoo Mail, you can go to Gmail, and everybody can email everybody else. Yeah. It's a weak analogy. There's It's not always perfect. But it's, it's so the intention is that's what's the power of Mastodon is that there's thousands of instances. And yeah. so what is likely to happen or is what, what could happen is that someone is going to create the world's best Mastodon instance. And, mm-hmm. um, and they just have all the servers, they can handle all the users and make the onboarding, which is a problem with Mastodon yeah. right now. They can fix that all up. So you could get effectively a really good Mastodon server that becomes, bad pun, the elephant in the room. And um, the, they become effectively the tail that wags the dog. Now, I think what Mastodon is trying really hard is to avoid that because no one company, for example, could be the email killer. Yeah. So that's really the question is the size of the market versus the size of the, of the goodness. So what I think the Mastodon community would hope is that, yes, please have a for-profit company come in and do an awesome job, but you get along with everybody else. And I, I'm very hopeful that that's what will happen. So... The role is that we have a large service design and user experience listener uh, base on This Is Hate CD. There's going to be people here who are, who are listening and kind of going, I'd like to get involved with some of these projects. Um, how do they do that? Like, you know, it, there's no contact form on Mastodon's website to, to say, hey, I'm, I'm happy to, to do some user research for you on certain features and stuff. In your experience, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm saying in your experience, you've managed to tap into some of these these networks. Um, How do you go about it? Do you need to wear a black cape and um, (laughs) at eleven o'clock? Well, now you know why I'm giving all these talks because so I was at at Fossback and uh, uh, what was the other one? Uh, UX Europe. Um, I've given given talks because I basically said I tried and I failed. I tried to come in and I got the, hey, do icons or mm. you, you get the table flip mentality of some of these children uh, that just that are over drama queens. And you're like, what the hell have I walked into? 
yeah. I, I literally made a proposal on one site and they said, if we do this, I'm going to quit the project. And I'm like, can we just talk? You know, and yeah. so there's there there's just interesting cultural things that are happening. Oh, and everyone's like, oh, that's just Bill. You know, just don't mind Bill. And so I think that there are cultural things and there's things. So I started, I assumed naively that open source was going to save the world. And all I had to do was just show up and everything would be peachy. And I discovered quite the opposite, that there's huge cultural issues. Um, I'm a, you know, closed source person by training. So I had an awful lot to learn. I still have a lot to learn about how the community works. Um, there's a certain speed to things. There's a lot more consensus organization. It's just a different way of working. And so I, my first talk was about UX people are locked out, help. And then my yeah. second talk was, what can you do as a maintainer to actually encourage UX designers? And I gave them three simple things that they could do. Um, and now I've moved on to let's talk about what we really have to do. Let's talk about design maturity. Let's talk about the goals that you have to have. And yeah. let's talk about the companies like uh, Elementary and um, Joomla and uh, Penpot that are like shining stars of, yeah. of UX. And just say, hey, these should be our apples, right? The, the Apple computer. These are the companies that are doing it. So let's just copy them. So that I just feel like I am trying to fix the problem that you just not fixed. I'm trying to bring light to the problem that you yeah. just called out. And uh, there is no obvious, simple answer, unfortunately. So people are still listening to this. We're, we're going to be doing a two-part series in this, okay? Because this is such a great topic. Um, the second part, we're, we're going to be talking a little bit more around, um, you know, understanding a little bit more around design within these fuzz projects. Um, and also, you know, general unease within that industry of fuzz developers or creators or whoever in there at the moment so we don't want to go down too too much into that road now scott because we're, we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail in a couple of months when you come back from your your travels overseas um are you okay to talk about your travels sure no problem yeah where are you going and after christmas we're going to india for two months and nice. my wife and i try to mix a combination of uh, personal, you know, fun and also volunteer work. So we try to go to various, uh, we set up meetings uh, with companies that need uh, consulting work. And we do, my wife and I both do pro bono work when we do that, when we travel. That's amazing. Um, it's amazing to be able to do that at the, you know, the point where you're at in, in your career, like to be able to work with these, these organizations, especially in India where there's there's a lot of great designers out there. I've done some free coaching for designers in India and there's so many amazing um, people out there that are, that are going to hopefully you're going to get to connect with some of them. And far um, more sophisticated than you would expect. So we, we yeah. la last year we did it in East Africa and we went, you know, we had two months there as well. And I was blown away by the quality of these organizations and the software they're producing. It's really, really inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, um, We'll we'll look forward to having the second part of this this um, this series. But um, for people who want to learn more about open source, do you have any resources that you could maybe suggest to people um, that we could maybe include in the show notes uh, about more about open source? Is there any websites or any um, books that you would recommend that they read? I mean, culturally, I'd say just search for the Cathedral and the Bazaar. That's kind of the canonical documents okay right um and there isn't that much i think written up about um 
uh, UX and open source. There are a couple of companies that oh. are uh, trying to do that. That are they're they're flowing up. There's the um, Open Source Design Foundation um, that is actually trying very hard to kind of create uh, mm-hmm. a culture of UX. Uh, so just search for those; you can find them. Um, so it's a fledgling thing that's all getting started. I don't think I have any kind of burning thing to point to. Yeah. Unfortunately, if I think of a few more, I'll send them to you. We can put them in the show notes. Absolutely. Sounds, sounds good. Scott, if I don't speak to you before then, um, have a great time in your travels and looking forward to connecting you for episode two. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. There you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishcd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.